0: Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show, on e 800.
1: Welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. But every Sunday afternoon, I join you here to chat about science, to try to answer your questions, and pose some questions of my own. Uh, My background is chemistry, and I think that chemistry is the science that ties all the other sciences together. If you have a feel for what molecules are all, about, uh, you have a pretty good idea of what can and cannot happen in the world. Okay, let me pose my question. Why are chickens in the Indonesian village of Tropodo laying eggs with a high content of dioxin? If you know the answer to that question, you give us a call, 514 790 That, of course, is also the number to call if you have questions of a scientific nature. And if you do get the question right, if you do get it correct, I do have a prize for you. And that prize is a copy of my new book, which is A Grain of Salt. And uh, in that, I try to separate the science from the pseudoscience of Nutrition and Eating. So if you are interested in uh, winning a copy of A Grain of Salt, all you have to do is answer the question, why are chickens in the Indonesian village of Tropodo laying eggs with a high content of dioxin? And you can also text comments to uh, 514-800. All right, let's get down to some other interesting uh, uh, matters. Uh, Erin Brockovich, uh, I'm sure you remember her. Uh, She won a rather large settlement from uh, the Pacific Gas and Electric Company in California uh, when she was able to convince, uh, eventually, the court uh, in lawsuit that there was an unusual incidence of disease that was caused by uh, an effluent containing chromium-6 from the Pacific Gas and Electric uh, Company. Uh, That has been highly controversial and uh, uh, subsequently has not shown an increased incidence of any kind of disease uh, in, in that particular area. But Erin Brockovich has uh, cropped up again, and this time she's making waves in Australia, and she has hitched her, uh, herself to a new wagon. But this time, you know what? Uh, she may actually be getting things right. She has been hired by a legal firm in a lawsuit against uh, Australia's Department of Defense. Why? Because this lawsuit alleges that the use of firefighting foams on military bases has led to groundwater contamination by chemicals that put people living in the surrounding areas at risk for a variety of diseases. It's a fascinating story. And the chemicals uh, that we're talking about uh, are what we call perfluoroalkyl substances. Now, that doesn't roll off the tongue that easily, so they're usually abbreviated as PFAS. PFAS stands for poly- and perfluoroalkyl substances. And... uh, These chemicals have a very wide range of application, one of which is in firefighting foams, due to their uh, effectiveness in extinguishing jet fuel fires, and obviously jet fuel fires are a real concern. There are over 5,000 of these uh, perfluoroalkyl substances that have been produced, and uh, a number of them, unfortunately, have been linked with various ailments. And uh, these include thyroid disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, high cholesterol, and even cancer. But these are interesting compounds, and of course they have a variety of uses. Thanks to their non-stick, stain-resistant water and oil repellent properties, uh, you find them in all kinds of products. Uh, pizza boxes, stain-free upholstery, waterproof clothing, some cosmetics, dental floss, ski wax, uh, and also in, in places where you normally wouldn't know about, they don't get much publicity, uh, like membranes in electrochemical cells. Those are very important. Uh, electrochemical cells are produced in many, many industrial processes, like in chloralkali plants that uh, produce chlorine and sodium hydroxide from uh, from salt. Uh, both of those are very important commercial commodities because they are needed in many, many uh, chemical processes. Uh, Well, the property that makes these chemicals so useful, uh, unfortunately, is also the same property that uh, raises the concerns. Since the carbon-fluorine bonds are not easily broken by microbes in the environment, these compounds are very persistent, and they tend to contaminate our food. Uh, We find them in our water supply, and of course, if you find them in the food and water supply, you also find them in our body. And uh, indeed, that's the reason that we call them forever chemicals, because they don't degrade. And uh, they stay around for a very long time. Maybe forever is a bit too much, uh, but but certainly a long time. The first such compounds appeared on the scene way back in the 1940s. That was when the 3M company, uh, 3M stands for Minnesota Mining uh, Metallurgy, they introduced something called perfluorooctane sulfonate, and this was a stain-resistant compound, and it found immediate use in a product called Scotchgard. And of course, many of you are familiar with Scotchgard because it can be sprayed on carpets, sprayed on furniture, to make these stain-resistant. Well, it turned out that another compound that they manufactured, that 3M manufactured, called perfluorooctanoic acid or PFOA, uh, found use as a surfactant in the production of Teflon. And Teflon, of course, the non-stick material, uh, was very, very useful, not only in cooking, we're familiar with that, but also uh, in the gaskets that are used in all kinds of machinery. It was very important in space flight. So Teflon certainly is commercially important. Anyway, by the year 2000, Environmental contamination was noted, and uh, claims of links to disease began to emerge, and that caused 3M to phase out the production of PFOS and PFOA. But the latter was critical for the production of Teflon, and DuPont was the world's largest producer of Teflon, so what was it going to do? It couldn't buy any more of this chemical from 3M, so it decided to produce it itself. But then in 2005, the Environmental Production Agency, EPA, in the States, classified this PFOA as a likely human carcinogen. Uh, DuPont agreed to eliminate its production by 2015. Since these fluorinated compounds were extremely useful, a frantic search for substitutes ensued. And researchers discovered that the number of carbon atoms in the molecule was a determinant of the environmental persistence. And if they could come up with uh, novel substances which had fewer carbon atoms in the chain, uh, then these would have enhanced biodegradability and would be less likely to bioaccumulate. However, there was an issue here too. The shorter chain also made the compounds more water-soluble resulting in an increased concentration in drinking water. When used in food packaging, the smaller molecules migrated more readily into food as well. And when it came to replacing the PFOA, which indeed DuPont managed to do, actually earlier than they said by 2013, it turned out that the replacement, which they called Gen X, uh, chemically speaking, it was a fluorinated ether, well, this then created a totally new set of headaches. When this novel processing aid was introduced in 2010, it was billed as having a favorable toxicological profile and was set to be eliminated rapidly from laboratory animals. Furthermore, technologies were in place to reduce environmental release, and the workers were not going to be exposed to uh, this chemical uh, as much as the original PFOA. So it looked at like, you know, everything was uh, going to be running pretty smoothly. However, it turned out that that was not the case, because even though Gen X was not supposed to show up in any effluent, uh, pretty soon traces of it were found. And worse than that, traces of its breakdown product also were found. And now, of course, there certainly is a lot of concern about this replacement and, in general, about these forever chemicals. And that's why companies are looking for ways to enhance the degradation of these once they get into the environment. And there are some novel uh, ideas that are being bandied about. There are some uh, microbes that have been isolated from soil that are capable of degrading these compounds. And we'll see whether or not bioremediation of these uh, uh, PFA uh, Uh, as compounds is going to be uh, a possibility. So we'll keep you up to date on this. Uh, And uh, again, uh, let me uh, remind you of the question that I threw out is why some uh, eggs in the Philippines are being contaminated by dioxin. We'll check traffic. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Let's hit the lines and see if I get an answer to my question about the dioxin and eggs in Indonesia. And Cliff may have an idea. Right, Cliff?
0: Yeah, hi, how are you? I'm sorry, okay. Joe. So I was calling with the answer for your question, I believe.
1: Okay, let's have so, it.
0: So dioxin can occur naturally and unnaturally. And some of the natural circumstances that can occur is in volcanic Where there's volcanic activity. And in the Philippines and in Indonesia, you do have a lot of volcanic activity. So you can have some naturally occurring dioxins. Most common reason for it occurring though is due to chemical spills. But volcanic activity can cause it an incomplete combustion.
1: Nice, nice, nice story, but not the one that uh, is responsible for the dioxin and eggs in that particular village in Indonesia. But anyway, I
0: thought it was due to volcanic volcanic activity getting into the soil.
1: No, um, it isn't. It isn't. Okay, good. Good attempt. Good attempt. We'll uh, see if someone else has uh, the answer to that uh, question. Carolyn. Hey, Carolyn. Hi. Hi.
2: Um, is it through, uh, their waste management? So, um, with the burning plastic or it being in their landfills and it getting into their water?
1: Yes. You, how do you know?
2: Uh, I just kind of guess that I know in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of issues with, um, waste and, uh, it kind of just. Yes, it, it does.
1: Uh, right. It, it does make for, I think, a, a very interesting uh, story, which obviously is why I've, I've asked this question. Anyway, stay on the line so uh, we can get your uh, address. OK, you. uh, and uh, I will send you a copy of uh, Grain of Salt. Okay? Thank you so much. I look forward to it. OK, so let me just discuss this uh, uh, a little bit. Um you know that uh, there's obviously a lot of plastic waste. I mean, we talk about this all the time, and we're going to be talking about more and more, because as the world produces more and more po- plastic, we have to know how to handle it. And a lot of it is ending up in the oceans. That's a, a, a huge concern. Now, a lot of the plastic waste from North America ends up being shipped to Asia. It used to be shipped to, to China, but China is not taking uh, any more you know we we put our um plastic uh, waste into the recycling uh and there are all kinds of problems with that because as you know there are many many different kinds of plastics and they all need to be recycled in different ways separating these is very important and people put a lot of stuff into the recycling bin that cannot be recycled uh, there are uh, all kinds of packaging materials which, which are made of plastic and paper and are, are dyed and uh, very difficult to recycle uh, those things but anyway uh, the stuff that can easily be recycled is picked out. um, And those are things like the polyester water bottles. That's very easily recycled. Those are picked out uh, for recycling. And then the rest of the mess is often shipped off to to Asia and to, in this case, to Indonesia. There's an industry there where they try to separate out more of the recyclables. Uh, But after they've done that, The rest of it ends up being burned. And of course you can burn plastic for energy just like you can burn wood or coal for uh, energy, except that there are issues associated with that. Well, who burns these things? Uh, Tofu is a staple food item in Asia and especially in Indonesia. And massive amounts of this are produced. But in order to make tofu, of course, you need soybeans. And uh, there's a boiling process involved. The soybeans have to be uh, uh, boiled and then the uh, soy milk uh, has to be Removed. There's a curdling uh, business, very much like making cheese. Uh, Things like calcium sulfate are added in order to to separate the the curds from the soy whey. Anyway, there's energy that is involved. And the boiling of the uh, soybeans, the energy there comes from burning uh, waste plastic. And much of that waste plastic uh, contains things like polyvinyl chloride, PVC, PVC is very difficult to to recycle, and it should never be incinerated. And the reason for that is that when it is burned, it will produce dioxins. PVC, as the name implies, polyvinyl chloride, is a chlorine-containing compound. And when you burn organic compounds that contain chlorine at a very high temperature we're talking you know incineration type of temperatures you produce dioxins and dioxins are notoriously uh, unfriendly compounds uh, they are endocrine disruptors uh, they have uh, carcinogenic properties you do not want them in your food supply Now, when these tofu manufacturers, I mean, this is a little village. I mean, I maybe shouldn't call them manufacturers because these are sort of mom and pop shops. But there are many, many of them, uh, especially in this village called Tropodo in, in, in Indonesia. And they're all burning the plastic waste and chickens effectively sample the soil as they forage uh, around, and the toxins that are found in the soil accumulate in the eggs. And the dioxin ends up in the soil there because the incineration releases the dioxins into the air, and rain washes them down into the soil, washes them down into natural water systems, uh, etc. But as the chickens forage around, they accumulate the dioxin, and that shows up in the eggs, and that's why we have this, uh, this issue. Now, this uh, does not apply to North America, so I don't want to scare anybody away from eating tofu. The tofu here is produced in a proper fashion. Uh, There is no polyvinyl chloride that is being burned in in the production of uh, uh, of tofu. Uh, But this is just a a story to alert us to the importance of handling our waste in a proper fashion. And uh, shipping it off to Asia uh, to be used in some unregulated fashion is not the answer to the plastic problem. Uh, recycling, of course, goes a long way in North America towards uh, dealing with uh, with plastics, but it also is not the solution uh, to the problem because not every plastic can be recycled, and certainly not all recyclables are are collected many people just throw away their plastic uh, materials in an irresponsible uh, fashion. And of course, we are exposed to plastics in in ways that that you would never even think of. Uh, I just had a question, for example, about coffee pods, right? And making coffee through these machines like the Nespresso machine and the Keurig machine. These have plastics inside in in the workings, and there's the question of whether or not any of that plastic slowly breaks down and gets into the coffee. And what about the coffee pods themselves? Well, the Nespresso pods, for example, are made of aluminum, but the aluminum is lined with shellac. Shellac is an insect exudate. It's a safe substance, and uh, uh, apparently the coffee comes only into contact with the shellac and and not with the the aluminum. But then there's the the problem of disposal of these things. Now, Nespresso does collect them, but just what they actually do with them and how much of it gets recycled and where these things end up... uh, isn't completely clear. I've got to look into that story uh, a little bit more because I must say, I I, I do find uh, both the Keurig and the Nestor pods a very easy way to make coffee, and I think that they make very good coffee. But uh, I also uh, try to be environmentally responsible, and uh, if it turns out that these things really are a drain on on the environment, uh, I'll look elsewhere. But at I have to look into this uh, you know, a bit more seriously because as you know in science, nothing is simple and all stories get a bit more complicated when you start scratching uh, the surface. Anyway, I, I will do a bit more research on, on the coffee pods and, and uh, their impact on the environment and we'll be talking about that on a, a future show. Anyway, right now we have to take a break. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show and we will be right back.
0: Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
1: Let me throw another question at you. And it's about a French king who was so passionate about vegetables that he had a garden which came to be called the Potager du Roi, built at Versailles uh, to produce vegetables for the court. Which king was that? So which king was so fond of vegetables that he actually had a vegetable garden built at Versailles to produce the vegetables for the court? You give us a call, 514-790-0800, or text to 514-800. I get text messages. I appreciate them, especially when they collect correct things that I've said. I said that uh, 3M stood for Minnesota Mining and Metallurgy. No, 3M stands for Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. So that, that is, of course, the correct uh, term. All right. Uh, someone else wanted to know about Teflon egg rings. I'm not sure what a Teflon egg ring is. Uh, that they are safe to cook with, and yet it says on them not to put them in the dishwasher. Well... Teflon is a very inert material, uh, so there's no health issue. However, it does get scratched. And uh, if you put them in a dishwasher, the um, uh, sodium carbonate that is part and parcel of dishwashing uh, uh, detergent can be quite corrosive, and it will scratch it. Uh, But I don't think there's any health hazard. I'm not sure what a Teflon egg ring is. So if you want to let me know, i certainly be... uh, Grateful for that. I like to expand my horizons. All right, uh, let's go to Ron, who has a question. Hi, Ron.
0: Yeah, hi there. Uh, can I answer that question? Sure. Uh, was that uh, was it uh, Louis the Fourteenth or something?
1: Yes, it was. Very good. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, the Sun King. Okay. Who oh, would I'll have thought it. that he loved vegetables? You know what else he loved? He loved uh, to wear wigs. Because when he was starting to lose his uh, hair, he started to wear wigs. And that's what started the whole style. You know, if the king wore wigs, then his courtiers started to wear wigs too. That's a- fascinating. All right. Anyway, what, what would you like to talk uh, about? I just
0: wanted to ask you, how long, you were talking before about fluoride and stuff like that. How, how long does a tooth enamel have to be exposed to sugar before it starts breaking down? And does it make a difference of the sugar's density?
1: Well, it it's makes it, what, what is important is the contact time. Mm-hmm. So for example if you if you drink a sugary beverage right mm-hmm. the contact time is actually not that long because you swallow it right it doesn't stay in the mouth but when right. you're when you're um, uh, sucking on candies sugary candies mm-hmm. then the exposure is much much longer uh, but uh, there are a lot of people who drink you know enough sugary beverages that even though they swallow them there's still you know so much contact time uh, <laughs>
0: And if you took a, a fluoride rinse, how long would the fluoride work to uh, you know, to prevent uh, the the uh, sugar from breaking down the uh, the, the, the? Well, that's
1: the not food the, food. that's not what the fluoride rinse does. Oh. Uh, what the fluoride rinse does is it incorporates fluoride actually into the uh, enamel. The mm-hmm. uh, chemically speaking, the enamel is something called hydroxyapatite. It's APA, mm-hmm. apatite, and uh, when uh, when you um, expose to fluoride, some of the fluoride ions will displace some hydroxyl ions from from this, and uh, it makes the fluor it makes the enamel much harder. You know, I talked earlier in the show today about the strength of the bond between carbon and fluorine. And in a totally different context when I talked about fluorinated compounds. But this is exactly what happens when when fluoride gets incorporated into the enamel. It forms bonds, and those are very strong bonds. So the enamel then becomes more resistant to uh, being broken down. Anyway, the moral of the story, as much sugary beverages and candy out of your mouth as you can, because uh, uh, bacteria on the surface of the teeth just love sugar as a nutrient.
0: But, but if if you were to um, let's say to drink a solution of Snapple, for instance, and and brush your teeth within let's say ten or fifteen minutes afterwards, w- would that be would, would would that be enough to stop the uh, the, the um the enamel from breaking down? Or,
1: I think so. Or- well, I think what, what is probably a better idea is that if you drink a sugary beverage, after that you rinse your mouth with water uh-huh. to try to get rid of any excess sugar. Uh, the idea is not to drink the sugary beverage in the first place.
0: Right? Okay. Well, so that's that's easier said than done.
1: Yes, yes <laughs> I, I I know that, and also you know you have to realize that uh, although we talk about sugary beverages and that conjures up images of Coke and Seven Up and all of the soft drinks, but fruit juices are also laden with sugar. Apple juice and apple juice uh, fall into the same category when it comes to their effect on on the enamel. Uh, obviously, nutritionally, they're not in the same category because they will have some vitamins and minerals that the soft drinks don't have. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, thanks. Uh, let's see what Dave wants to discuss. Hi, Dave.
2: Yeah, good afternoon. I, I do not know if this will be a relevant question. Uh, I, I'm always uh, given to understand that our body is made up of the elements of the earth, which is like, a, like iron, uh, magnesium. Well, it
1: certainly That's is. Everything in the world is made up of... That's
2: right. And the way we look after our body, which is the, the elements... The, the, the That will give us the longevity of our life and that uh, this superstitious uh, belief that, oh, our day of death is already predetermined. So actually we can, uh, by looking after our body, we can prolong our life unless... Uh, some other complications.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, we know that, that nutrition is extremely important and people who have poor nutrition don't live as long as people who who have better nutrition. I mean, that certainly is, is true. But, and, al-
2: and also the environment where we live, pollution and
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, all of those are important factors. I mean, whether or not, uh, you know, our death is predetermined, that's a philosophical question. That's not a scientific question. I mean, obviously, if you... Are involved in some sort of accident. That, that's not the same thing as, as dying because of improper and, uh, nutrition. And
2: one, one more secondary question is: When when life comes into existence, how how does one, two uh, male and female develop into all these the whole body with all these elements? It means all these elements are already at the, at the time of conception.
1: Uh, yes, or they are furnished to the uh, embryo in nutrition from the mother to the placenta. So uh, all, all of the elements, everything that is needed to make the body are furnished through the food supply whether it 's directly to the uh, through the mother or uh, as we grow from infancy, food is the only source of raw material that enters our body, so we are indeed constructed of the food that we eat, and the food is constructed of, of Thousands and thousands of different compounds containing numerous elements. The human body is composed of thousands of different uh, uh, chemicals. And the fact that uh, anyone is ever healthy is uh, fascinating when you know just how complex the body is and how many chemical reactions have to be going right all the time in the human body for us to be healthy. Uh, sometimes it's better not to know too much about how the body works because then you start thinking about all of the things that can go wrong. Okay. Okay. It's very, Thank you very much. Very interesting uh, uh, question, and uh, I mean, obviously, uh, most of our body is is uh, made up of proteins, fats, uh, and um, uh, calcium compounds. But there are many, many compounds found in the body in very small. Amounts that are equally important. Uh, Hormones, for example, are are found in very small amounts. Uh, Our pituitary gland every day uh, produces only about one microgram of hormones, but without that, there would be no life. So the human body is the most fascinating machine on the face of the earth, and it is extremely complicated, and it's amazing that we know as much about it as we know. You're listening to the Dr. Joe show. Take a break and be right back.
0: Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The
1: Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I had an interesting question, texted in, uh, about uh, high-pressure pasteurization and how does that differ from ordinary pasteurization. Well, as you know, in ordinary pasteurization, uh, uh, whatever product you're trying to to. Uh, make sure it has no bacteria left in it is heated to a temperature. Bacteria will die at a high enough temperature. But there's another way of killing bacteria and that is by exposing them to high pressure. And this can be done at cold temperatures. And this is what is known as uh, high pressure processing uh, or high pressure uh, pasteurization. And what they do in that case is basically immerse the food in water and then very high pressure is applied to that water. The water transmits that pressure to the food, and it causes the bacteria basically to burst and die. Uh, milk, for example, can be uh, processed in this way, and it's already processed while it's in the package, so it has a very long shelf life. And uh, it will have somewhat of a uh, different flavor, uh, but not not dramatically. So high-pressure uh, processing is a very effective way to rid some foods of, uh, of bacteria uh debbie has a question debbie Debbie, Hello? yes hi
2: hi, De- hi dr joe hi I heard on the news about some kind of a new virus or bacteria or something that's uh going around china
1: oh i i think you're referring to the coronavirus yeah yeah i i, I really don't know much about that uh, except that uh, there are a number of people in China who were infected. Uh, it's it's a a virus that is apparently in the same family as the SARS, you know, that caused so many problems here uh, years ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But um, I, I don't. I, I don't really know whether or not uh, we yet have to start worrying about it uh, here. I, I I don't know any more than what the press so far has uh, said, but uh, we'll see what uh, we can dig up on this if, if it becomes a real uh, significant problem. But, you know, there okay. are many, many different kinds of viruses out there. And uh, some of them are are pretty innocuous. Some of them are very dangerous. So the question is: Is this really spreading? How many people are are exposed to it, and and uh, what are the consequences? And uh, I'm just not familiar enough with it, but we will look into it.
2: You're going to study it now,
1: and we will, we will. And I, I I expect that there will be more and more articles coming out of it if it really turns out that uh, there are more infections than uh, than first appear.
2: Yeah, but okay. I, I want to know, is it a virus? Or it's a virus, it a yes, it's,
1: it's a virus. It's a virus. Oh, it's a virus. It's a virus, and therefore antibiotics will not work against it.
2: Okay, so it okay. can be spread everywhere.
1: It can be spread, yeah.
2: That's not... Okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's not good. It's, it's not good,
1: but uh, let's wait and see what this particular virus does. Okay,
2: Okay. All right. thank you very
1: much. Okay, and uh, this is, of course, the season when people are catching colds and they're trying to uh, resort to all kinds of remedies, in- including zinc lozenges. And, uh, you know, these are offered as supposed protection against the common cold, and there are many, many products on shelves that claim to offer protection, uh, including some zinc lozenges. The question is, do they work? Well, first let me tell you a little bit about zinc. It is an essential mineral to health. We were talking earlier about what the body is made up of. Well, zinc is one of the components. We cannot live without it. But we don't need very much. We only need about 15 milligrams of zinc a day. It's very important in wound healing, functioning of our immune system, uh, eyesight, brain development, uh, proper functioning of sperm, uh, the synthesis of testosterone in the body depends on, on zinc. And uh, the high zinc content of oysters may uh, explain the traditional belief that they possess some aphrodisiac properties because of of the link between zinc and testosterone production. Uh, Even our sense of smell and taste depend on enzymes that include zinc in their molecular structure. Now, the zinc-cold relationship was first noted in 1980 when... uh, more in a lark than anything else. Although with knowledge that zinc played a role in immunity, doctors gave a three-year-old girl a 50-milligram zinc gluconate tablet to try to boost her immune system because of chronic colds. She refused to swallow the tablet, but she sucked on it as if it were candy. And magically, her symptoms resolved. This prompted a number of studies on the value of zinc supplements in alleviating the common cold. The trials have been split down the middle, with some showing an improvement in symptoms and some not. One study, however, that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, seemed to shift the playing field in favor of the supplements. In a controlled trial, 50 volunteers took about 13 milligrams of zinc in the form of zinc acetate or a placebo every two to three hours, as long as they had cold symptoms. The results were statistically significant. The zinc group had a shorter average duration of colds, four and a half days versus eight days. The total zinc taken was about 80 milligrams a day, which although well above the daily requirement, should not cause any problem over such a short period. Exactly how the zinc works is not known. One theory is that it prevents the virus from entering cells by binding with a protein that normally facilitates such entry. Another possibility is that zinc decreases the levels of inflammatory substances in the blood called cytokines. The form of zinc supplement seems to be important. In one study, the duration of illness was significantly lower in the group receiving zinc gluconate lozenges, those provide about 30 milligrams of zinc, but not in the group receiving zinc acetate lozenges that provided about 11 milligrams of zinc. None of the zinc preparations affected the severity of cold symptoms in the first three days of treatment. The bottom line, then, is that zinc is not a cold cure, but if you can get over the metallic taste and dry mouth, it may be worth a try to shorten the duration of a cold. The number of days lost from work due to a common cold annually is a burden on the economy. Uh, One last thing. Low levels of zinc in the blood have been associated with cognitive impairment. So maybe by taking zinc, we'll be better able to judge whether we should be taking zinc or not. That's the update on, on zinc. Uh, of course, uh, the other substance that comes uh, up these days when it concern about the common cold is vitamin C. And uh, Linus Pauling, of course, who was... Uh, probably the greatest chemist of the last century. I mean, he was absolutely a brilliant man. He laid the foundations to uh, bonding theory between atoms and uh, almost uh, got to the uh, three-dimensional structure of DNA before Watson and Crick all by himself. Brilliant man. But then, uh, purely on his own experience. He published a little book uh, about how vitamin C can prevent the common cold, and the scientific community was really confused by that because here was a double Nobel Prize winning scientist, very adept at at, uh, publishing peer-reviewed papers, and yet he published this anecdote. Uh, Studies were done, and unfortunately, uh, those studies came out pretty negative in terms of uh, vitamin C preventing the common cold. However, This is my own anecdotal evidence. (laughs) Uh, I think if you feel a cold coming on and you feel the little scratchiness at the back of the throat, if you take a gram of vitamin C an hour for about four hours, I think there's a good chance of preventing the cold. Anyway, that is my own experience. I'm not going to publish a book on it. I'm not going to write an article on it because it's just an anecdote. Uh, and of course, I don't have the reno-may of Linus Pauling. Uh, so I don't think... Many people will listen to to what I say. I'm just reporting on my own experience. Uh, There is no risk with uh, uh, taking that amount of vitamin C. Uh, Vitamin C is a remarkably safe substance. Uh, The only thing that it can sometimes trigger is a little bit of diarrhea. Uh, That's according to the theory. I've I've never actually experienced that. So when I... uh, Feel the scratchiness in the back of the throat. I will do that. Take a gram, usually chewable. I think, uh, yeah, that should be mentioned too. Chewable because that would then coat the throat with vitamin C, comes into contact with the virus. Anyway, that's my experience, but don't take my word for it because who am I compared to Linus Pauling and nobody, and even he was wrong about vitamin C preventing the common cold. But what I'm not wrong about is that we have run out of time. The hour has once again flown by, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.